Right around the, the 300 AD, so about 300 years after Christ, uh, lived a man named Augustine. Uh, you might know him by his Americanized name, August, Augustine. Uh, most call him Augustine. Saint Augustine, as he's known. Wonderful man of the faith. Uh, incredible, prolific writer. One of the great intellects of Christian heritage. And he had this, um, he had this grand vision that kind of is the blanket that you could kind of summarize all of his work underneath. Like if you wanted a quick course on Augustine, what was Augustine all about? One of the major themes of Augustine is that we are called to have one love, one great love that governs our whole life. And that, that really the Christian life is learning how to take every other love in your life, every other like in your life, every other bit of your life, and find it finding its order and its place underneath that one great love of your life. That's Augustine in a, in a nutshell. That's what he's teaching. I have a couple quotes here I want to read to you because I think they'll guide our time today pretty well. Augustine says this, there are inferior values that have their delights. So there's the one love, then there's these other inferior values that also have their delights, but not at all equal to my God who made them all. For in him do the righteous delight and he, for in him do the righteous delight, the righteous people delight, and he is the sweetness of the upright in heart. So he's the ultimate aim and love of our life. Here's a bit of a longer quote following up to that. He says, rest in him and you shall be at rest. The good that you love is from him. And here's an important line. Insofar as it is also for him, it is both good and pleasant. But it will rightly be turned to bitterness if whatever comes from him is not rightly loved and if he is deserted for the love of the creature, why then will you wander further and further in these difficult and toilsome ways? There is no rest where you seek it. Seek what you seek, but remember that it is not where you seek it. You seek for a blessed life in the land of death. It is not there, for how can there be a blessed life where life itself is not? I want to go back to the beginning of that quote, and if you can leave that up there for a second. The good that you, rest in him and you shall be at rest. The good that you love is from him and insofar as it is also for him, it is both good and pleasant. This is Augustine's whole idea. We are to take everything in our life, even the good things in our life, and find that they find their ultimate purpose and we get our ultimate joy in so much as we take even those good things and position them underneath the one great thing, God and his glory. And so all of the Christian life is constantly taking all these areas of our life and bringing reformation to our heart, constantly bringing them back into alignment because what we tend to do is we take the good things and they just get out of position a little bit. They start going in angles that are more independent from the one good thing. And so as we begin today, I want to ask you, what areas of your life, maybe even good things, are, are somewhat becoming free from the one great thing? Are there any places in your life, any relationships in your life, any habits in your life that maybe aren't in and of themselves necessarily wrong and bad, maybe sinful, maybe they're not bad, but they're starting to develop a, a personality of their own detached from the one very good thing. They, they've lost their place. And, and, and does reformation need to come as we start asking God, help me bring these back into alignment with you? Where are we enjoying the pleasures of creation rather than the creator himself? 
Today we come to this remarkable passage at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And if you've been here with us, you're going to be exhausted from some of the language that he's going to still be using. Because chapters 8 through 10, we've had, uh, this is now six sermons dealing with one very particular topic. And you're going to hear part of this on repeat today. But I think that's so important for us to get this idea and to work it through until it's fully understood in all of its depth. But he brings a new twist on this. Now if you've been with us, the concept is this cultural thing that was happening in, in, in the Corinthian culture in the first century of offering food to idols. Now, you remember this, okay? Well, here's what was happening. This was commonplace. There was a lot of pagan idolatry happening in Corinth at the time, and these false religious practices were taking place where people would take an animal, take a goat, take a pigeon, take a bull, and they'd have a, a worship service to a false god. And they'd sacrifice the meat on the altar. And then they'd, they'd throw a big party and they'd eat some of the meat. And they'd invite all their friends over. And then they'd, they'd, they'd give some of the meat to the local butcher shop. And the next day, everyone from the city would have to go to the butcher. And if you wanted to eat meat that day, you'd have to go. And, and some of the meat might have been from a false idol service. Some of it might have just been regular meat from the butcher shop. And the Christians were asking a really good question to the Apostle Paul. Can, what can we do? Like, can we, go to the, can we go to the party my friend throws? if it's meat that was offered to an idol? Can, can, we, can we go to the butcher shop and buy meat if it's potentially meat that was offered to an idol? And we've talked about this over and over again. And, and Paul says there's, there's one big ethic that should drive all your decision-making on these questions we ask about where our faith intersects with culture. Ready? And the big ethic was, does my participation in this build everyone up around me in Jesus Christ? What is it communicating to those who are around me? And what we've seen is that this, this extends far beyond eating meat offered to idols. We've had conversations about Netflix. We've had conversations about how we behave online, about what movies we go to, about what theater we see, about what restaurants we, we go to, about what conversations we enjoy. We, we've seen that this is a whole conversation, food offered to idols, in our modern day. It, it's, it's the everyday questions of where, where do we draw lines with our faith and say we can't go any further than this. Or we need to adjust the way we're behaving in this. Now today, he, he brings us to his final, if you will, he begins to transition away from this topic today. And he brings us to this one ultimate idea. And it's simply this. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let me read the whole passage to us, and then we'll, we'll kind of dig in one verse at a time. Starting in chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful. Notice how that's in quotation marks. He's quoting something they said. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever's sold in the, market, in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Notice he's quoting again something they said. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if they, if someone says to you, this meat that I'm offering to you right now to eat has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Why? For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, I do not seek, in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, the big idea, like I said, you saw it word for word right in there. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Verse 23 through 30 are a bit of review, and we're going to go through this a bit more briefly today because it is review, and we're going to focus specifically on the second half where he says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But let's get through this last section of food offered to idols. He says, they're quoting to him in verse 23. They're in this situation, and they're trying to say, look, Paul, we should be able to go to the party with my buddy who just offered the meat to the idol. Or we should be able to go to the butcher and buy any food. Why? Well, their quote is this. All things are lawful. That's what they're saying to him. That means, yeah, we're freed from the law. You know, Jesus has come and the ceremonial practices are totally fulfilled in Jesus. So we no longer need to make all the same sacrifices he made. We don't need to think about that the same way. Because when you put your faith in Jesus, it's the final ultimate sacrifice to God. So all the other sacrifices are done. Therefore, all things are lawful, Paul, aren't they? We should be able to do whatever we want without even thinking twice about it. And he comes back to them, he says, look, sure, all things are lawful. You're right, in a sense. All things are lawful, in a sense, in this context of what you're trying to communicate, yes, you're right, but you've missed it. You've missed it. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but, but not all things build up. And what's he communicating there? He's saying, look, it may technically be lawful in a vacuum, but you live in a, in a city where there's a whole lot of other people around you, and every decision you make, every place you go, every conversation you're in, every joke you laugh at, this is communicating something about what you believe about Jesus to, to, to people who are all around you. And so even though it might be lawful per se, that doesn't mean that it's not sinful to behave in this way and to go to the meat market and to, and to purchase the food because if your ultimate aim is to desperately desire to build everyone up around you in Christ, in every conversation, and if you really believe in the providence of God, that there's no such thing as an accidental relationship, there's no such thing as an accidental encounter, then wherever you go, whatever you're doing, that is an opportunity and a moment for you to make much of Jesus Christ and to point everyone around you to Christ. And so yes, Paul, Paul's saying, what you do with these idols is far more than it just being lawful. Does it build up? Does it encourage? Does it equip? He says in verse 25, he gives two scenarios. The two scenarios are this. Number one, you go to the meat market. That's verse, I think verse 25 is about the meat market. And then verse 26 and verse 27 are about you get invited to a friend's house. And the situation's pretty clear. He says, on the grounds of conscience, this is historic Christian language. Your conscience is something about the image of God within every human being that that, that kind of gives a, a moral evaluation of the way you're participating. And as a follower of Jesus, you've been given the Holy Spirit to stir that conscience up to its proper standard. So now you know what God's true heart is because the Holy Spirit's in you. He says, you go to the butcher shop and you walk in and, and you don't know what's been, what's been offered to meet. It's just, it looks all the same to you. Do you need to ask, hey, look, butcher Dan, what's been offered to an idol? Can you make sure you tell me so I don't buy that on accident? What's Paul's answer? No, you don't need to ask. You, with a clear conscience, you can just go. You live, we live in a pagan city. Just buy your meat. It's okay. You go to a friend's house, he says, verse 26 to 28, and they're serving food to you. Do you need to check your friend before, before you start eating? Be like, hey, look, I hate to ask this, but I'm a Christian. Was this offered to Baal last night? Was it? 
right? You don't need to do that, says Paul. He says, you can have a clear conscience, right? But, he says, in verse 28, in verse 28, he says, if someone says to you that this was food that was offered to an idol, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, for their conscience. What does that mean? So now you're at the butcher shop, and Butcher Dan has a big sign out. We've said this already. And the sign says, food offered to Baal, the false god, from last night's worship service, 25% off, clearance. <laughs> Can you buy the clearance meat? No. But why? For the sake of Butcher Dan. Isn't that interesting? Because your job and your commissioning is to, is to make much of Jesus Christ in every interaction you have. And now Butcher Dan's watching you. And Butcher Dan's saying, look at this Christian. Let's see what he thinks about false gods. Let's see, what he, let's see what he really believes about his God. And he sees you looking at the sign, and he's back there cutting his meat. He's saying, I know who you are. Ah, we talk about you. He buys the meat. Look at that. He doesn't really think much about his God, does he? That conversation never takes place, but in Butcher Dan's conscience, he's now evaluating your decisions to buy the meat. And so Paul says, for the sake of Butcher Dan, don't buy the meat. Just stay away from it. You're at your friend's house, and they're serving you dinner, and then they say this. You, you, know, you don't have to ask, was it offered to an idol? But as soon as they say, hey, look, you know, this was from the worship service last night at the false idol. As soon as they say that, can you eat the meat? No, you can't eat it. You have to step away at that point. You have to find a way to tactfully communicate what you believe. Why? For the sake of your friend's conscience. Because God has providentially orchestrated it for you to be in that person's life in such a way that you are to point all things to the glory of God. And as soon as they know that you know that it was idol worship, now it's a whole different conversation. Now their mind is asking questions about what you truly believe about God, about what you truly believe about false idols, about what you truly believe about what worship is all about. And so for the sake of your friend, for the sake of the butcher, you walk away. Why? This is the same premise for six weeks. We've, this is on repeat. This is the main ethic. Because our ethic in all these moments where our faith interacts with culture around us, and we have to make decisions of where can we participate, where can we not, where do we need to step away? As a Christian, it's all built off one ethic, a desperate desire, an angst, an agony of the soul to see everyone who God has providentially put in our path come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Do you see that? And, it, and, and the problem that we've tried to ex expose is that so often we go through life without, even, without thinking twice about this. And these three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, have laid this in front of them at nauseam, at like too much. We're tired of this topic. And Paul has lingered here long enough to annoy us for a reason. Because I think we go through so much of life not thinking twice about butchered end. And, and we've got to start saying, God, why are we here? Who are these beautiful people made in the image of God who don't know you, who I'm passing by without a, a second thought? This, inter, this, this, this engages everything about our life. This engages every conversation. How we, how we spend our time online how we spend our time in, in the clubs we're a part of in the city or the communities that we find ourselves engaged in, in our neighbor's lives. It engages everything. 
Because if all of a sudden we're thinking, this is not about me, it's about my king. And if my king's on a mission to win for himself a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and I've been given the Holy Spirit, equipped with spiritual gifts to step into that space, then who am I to go past anybody and not think twice about what my witness to them is communicating? What am I, I'm just playing with God's commissioning over my life. And then he says, verse 31, this is where I want to linger for the majority of my time today. He says, so whether you eat or you drink, that language is saying, whatever you do, wherever you are, do all, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you're doing, do all to the glory of God. Wherever you are, be there for the glory of God. Whatever conversation you're in, no matter how trivial it seems, converse for the glory of God. Whatever website you're on, browse for the glory of God. Whatever deal you're closing in business, transact for the glory of God. Now, this doesn't mean that every, every conversation you have needs to be baptized in Christian lingo, right? That's not what this means. This doesn't mean that you can't be an effective businessman or a businesswoman here in Chicago and that every conversation you have needs to somehow find a way to get to the, the details of the gospel. Many will. Many conversations will get that to that place. But what it does mean is that at all times, wherever you are, whether you're eating or drinking, whatever you're doing, there's something about the Christian that's very aware that this is not my day. It's his day. And I'm his ambassador. And he's got me strategically in these places. And so I want my behavior and my conversation and my values and my, my driving force of everything I'm doing, no matter how small or big it seems in my day, to point everyone around me to Jesus Christ. This is what Augustine was getting at, wasn't it? Right, remember what he said? The good that you love is from him, and insofar as it is also for him, it is both good and pleasant. Remember what I said? Our job is to to take all those little kind of stray hairs that go off in the wrong direction and find them pointed back up towards the one who they were all designed for in the first place. Let's remember the gospel. Let's remember the cost of what this is all about. Galatians chapter two, verse 20. I repeat this to you all the time. I have been crucified with Christ. That's language of, of death. If you're a Christian, this, this is not your life anymore. This is, this is regular Christianity. This is not pastor Christianity or apostle Christianity. This is every follower of Christ who's ever put their faith in Jesus. This is your story. I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, that's all of me. My whole life, not my Sunday morning, not my Wednesday evening small group, my whole life, everything about me. In the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now think about this, Philippians chapter three, verses seven to eight. Paul is looking back on his old life before he knew Jesus. A very religious life, by the way. A very pious life in the sense of what he thought piety and religion was all about back then. He was a religious leader. He said, whatever gain I had, right? He was the all-star. This was, everyone knew him. He was famous. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, basic Christianity is something very different than what most evangelical churches in our modern day are preaching. Basic Christianity demands a whole reorientation of your life. 
It says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus went to the cross for me. And my path, if I had never encountered Jesus, is that I'm guilty before a holy God, and we all know it. We are all very well aware of it because our conscience burns within us. But Jesus went to the cross because he loves me, and he gave his life for me. He shed his blood on a cross so that all of my debt to God could be forgiven in full. And I had a debt to God. And the debt would have been paid by my life for all eternity future in hell. Apart from God, that's the consequences of even the slightest sin against a holy God. And that's a warning to each person in this room. But Jesus went to the cross and he sacrificed his life that all of our sins could be forgiven, that eternity could be enjoyed with God, and that our life here could be lived for the first time the way it was designed to be lived. Not in the trivialities of fleeting pleasures, but in in the pursuit of the one true and living God, the thing that actually gives life to the human soul. And so now, now, as Christians, we say, we've been crucified to that old life. What was I spending my time doing? Even the things that seemed good on the outside, I look back on them, and if they weren't positioned towards Jesus, they were a waste of my time. They didn't give me life. In fact, when I measure what they were actually giving in my life, they were giving me death on 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 the measure of it all. And now I'm a Christian, I've been crucified, I count that as loss, and I want everything. This is, this is basic Christianity. I want every area of my life, every conversation, every click, everything. I want it to be for his glory. And of course we recognize that we, we don't get this right, and we, we, we fail, every one of us. But, but there's a heart posture of a Christian that says, I desire it, I'm chasing after that. I'm going to get this wrong, and there's still the the flesh that I'm working on in this life, and and by God's grace, he's working on me and growing me over the long run, and I will continue to stumble. By God's grace, I've been set free from the condemnation of that, but I'm going this way. The Christian life is this great reorientation, but so much of modern Christianity is is like this, this club mentality, you know? You sign up for the yacht club, Give me, give me, what, what do we want? What do we want? We, we want community. We want friends. We want, you know, somewhere to go have a good time on a weekend. Sometimes it's worse. Sometimes it's even more specific than that. Sometimes it's like we want someone to drink with, you know? I've seen this plenty of times. But, and and what, what, what is a lot of this saying? We're saying, what do we really want out of the church? We want a bunch of things that are kind of detached from the one thing that's supposed to give us, to, to give the full glory to. We, we want all the pleasures of Christian community without the the singularity of Christ as the the headstone and cornerstone of all of it. We don't want to bleed for this. We don't want to sweat for this. And that's why the New Testament is so confusing to us when we read it so often because we get to these passages where Paul is talking about bleeding and sweating for the gospel and, and we just say, that's a foreign idea. Because everything I know about Christianity is just pretty cushy cozy, right? Everything I know about my faith, as long as I've lived it, I've never bled or sweat for anything. And so we read the New Testament, and, it, and there's this unsettling feeling inside of us, like the apostles were talking about something different than what we're doing with our time. And maybe they were. Because Christ calls us to crucify the old life and now to live all of our life bringing every, even the pleasures and the good things in our life into alignment with the one true person, Christ. We make church, we make the Christian faith. I want, I want, I want, I want this. I want that ministry, I want that ministry. And these aren't bad. That's not a complaint about anybody or anything. It's just, this is what church ends up being. 
And, and then we go back, and, 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 and our job as Christians is to take this book and to say, we build it all from here. I heard someone say recently, you want to hear from God? Read the Bible. You want to hear from God audibly? Read it out loud. <laughs> Isn't that good? And that, that's what it is. And then we, we structure the whole church around what has God told us to do? And if we're honest, if we're really honest, and if we start pulling at some of these idols of ours that we, that we hold on to without realizing they're idols, what we're going to realize is that there's a lot, of, a lot of times we're spending our, our, our time busy with church and we're not really after. Here's a good question for you. Are you making any disciples? That, that one right now, you all should just feel like this 40-pound weight on your chest, right? I'll include myself in this. I'll include myself. I'm feeling a 40-pound weight on my chest this week. Now, granted, now let me make sure I caveat this. The gospel is so good that Jesus says, give me your burdens, right? So he takes that 40-pound weight. I get it, yes. Let's just sit in the conviction for a moment. What's the thing, what's the one thing Jesus told us to do? <laughs> the main thing. Make disciples, I say it every week, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples. Individual, personal question. I'm not asking about your church, whether your church is doing this. Are you, Christian, making disciples? Oh, it's the one thing. We're going through church. Rhythm, rhythm, rhythm. Sunday, 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 small group, small group, small group, worship, worship, worship. And we're not making disciples? Maybe we got it wrong. And, and maybe the reason we got it wrong is because we've, we've settled for a whole lot of good things, but we haven't positioned them towards Jesus and what he's doing. Because here's what he's doing. He is winning people to faith in Jesus Christ right now. He is busy with that work. And he doesn't need us. This is not like, I, I need you. God is God. And he will win people through dreams and visions. But he has invited us by the power of the Holy Spirit, to take everything about us, every bit of us, every bit of our heart and our mind, and to position it into alignment with his mission. And here's the amazing thing. When you start to bleed and sweat for this, life comes on fire. It's like a light switch gets turned on, and you start realizing, what was I missing out on beforehand? I got more to give. I got more hours to stay awake. What was I doing with my time? God has equipped every single follower of Jesus with this remarkable combination of personality, story, spiritual gifts, and relationships to make much of Jesus Christ. Everything about you, what makes you you, has been designed by God to be effective for making disciples in the work he's doing. And your role is different than my role, and her role is different than her role, and, and each of us, our responsibility, if we get this, if we understand the gospel and how good it is, and if we say, this is where we stand, this is what we're going to do, then we have, a, we have a heavy responsibility as a church. Our responsibility is to say, God, what have you assigned me? And take inventory of it all. Look at every relationship, every providential circumstance, and to bring it back before God, not in a sense of guilt, but in a sense of like a kid in a candy shop. God, what you, what, how are you going to use this? I don't know yet. I'm not sure yet, but I'm sure it's got something with your name on it. So help me point it in your direction. And anytime we find any part of our life that it, that's kind of like a stray hair going off in the wrong direction, we say, God, comb it back into place, all right? Because I want that for your glory. And if I leave that that way, it's going to cause a disaster in the long run. Sometimes you need a conviction check. 
Now, those of you who are in our spiritual formation class, you're gonna be getting the next bit of content in double, but I think it's very applicable to what we're doing here. We went over some of this material recently in a spiritual gifts class I taught. Every person has a unique set of personality, gifts, relationships, and, and, and sometimes I think we limit ourselves in our understanding of what those gifts are. So I wanna borrow from Charles Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of a previous generation, as he taught us in great detail about what it means to take everything and to angle it towards the glory of God. And he goes through, in one of his sermons, he goes through all these different giftings that people have that they don't realize they have, that they could be used for the glory of God. Let me read one longer quote here, and then we'll go through a handful of different ways that God might speak to you today. This longer quote, Charles Spurgeon is speaking about those who have the gift of gab. Interesting. The gift of conversation. You're the kind of person... You go into a room and you, you, can, you, can, you can just make friends with everybody in the room. Easy peasy. That's, that, that's just how God wired you. Not everyone has that. Charles Spurgeon laments that he didn't have that gift. But listen to what he says. This is a longer quote, but it's worth it. There's another gift, which is a very admirable one. It's the gift of conversation. Not a readiness for chit-chat and gossip. He who, who he, I love this. He who has that wretched propensity may bury it in the earth and never dig it up again. So pause there. If ever you get a little offended by the words I preach, just know the old guys preached with a lot more strictness and firmness than I do, okay? But the gift of leading conversation, of being what George Herbert called the master gunner, when we have that, we should most conscientiously use it for God. Notice what he's saying. He's saying, take the gift of conversation and then angle it towards the glory of God. He says, I wish I could with discreet adroitness break in upon a conversation in a railway carriage and turn it around to the Savior, turn it around to something worth speaking of. I often envy those of my brethren who can go up to individuals and talk to them with freedom. I do not always find myself able to do so. Though when I have been divinely aided, I have had a large reward. How many a soul has been brought to Christ by the loving personal exhortation of Christian people who know how to do it? Oh, some of you can do this better, perhaps than those who are called to speak to hundreds and thousands. Do you have the gift of conversation? And are you using it for the glory of God? Are you that person? It's not everybody. In fact, it might be a minority in this room, but you who have it know you have it. And have you been taking every opportunity to walk into a room and use that way that God has wired you and gifted you for his glory, and you're saying, God, make much of you today with my day. I'm in a room. How do I make much of Christ? Some of you have the gift of knowledge. You know, some of you, you read the Bible, and I know this because you send me the most fascinating questions in email. It, it just, it just questions that baffle me, and I gotta go back, and I gotta do study so I can respond to your question faithfully to the text as your pastor. But you're going through your Bible, and, and you're parsing it, and you're reading old theologians, and you're, you got your charts, and you've got, you know, all these old, you know, images of the different ways to break the scriptures apart. And if you've got the gift of knowledge, how are you using that for the glory of God? Is it just making an encyclopedic brain? Or are you using every opportunity to impart wisdom into people's life and what the word of God says? See, see we, need, we need you speaking truth and taking the word of God and speaking it into people's life. We need you teaching in our children's school classes the word of God and truly, rightly dividing it. Our kids can handle way more than we, than we oftentimes think they can. They can handle far more than we give them credit for. We need you deeply teaching the word of God in different spaces and speaking truth into people's life. Don't just build an encyclopedia for a brain. That's not worth anything, right? We, we, we want to we pour it out into the kingdom of God. Some of you don't have the gift of speaking beautifully, but you have the gift of writing beautifully. Isn't that amazing? That's a gift that God's assigned you. 
Some of you actually, you have incredible handwriting. You know that? The way you write, in, it's, like, it's like you're writing in a cursive font, it's so beautiful. I don't, know, I don't know how you do it. I can't do that. I look like a child writing. But do you know what it's like to get a handwritten letter from someone who really knows how to use words properly? How to write for the glory of God? How to use script for the glory of God? You know, when you get a handwritten letter in the mail, it's like, it's like, a, like your mind explodes. You're like going back to the early 90s. Like, what just happened in my life? I can't, but what do you do? You don't put it to the side with the bills. You rip it open with eager enthusiasm. Who wrote a handwritten letter to me? That's what everyone does. Butcher Dan needs a letter from you. You, you see, you're, you, you have unbelievable gifts from God. You, you, God's wired you and he's put you in providential relationships. And the fact that you have fonts that you can write with, put that one to God's glory. Some of you have the gift of influence. In this room, I know there's a handful of you. You rub shoulders with big dogs in this city. Movers and shakers. And you're not intimidated by it. You sit down and you, you, you eat meals with folks and you, and you do business transactions with folks who are working hundreds of millions of dollars throughout the week. And, and it's not intimidating. For some of you, 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 you can go into a room like this. But for others, it's just your life. God's made you that way. You're, you, you move in those circles. I, I was sharing a while ago. Did you know how, how D.L. Moody, the great D.L. Moody of Chicago, he was funded by Montgomery Ward. Did you know that? That's how that work got done. It's expensive to, to run big ministry. Some of you are movers and shakers, and to get big things done, it takes people who think big, who can make things happen, who can move barges down rivers. And, and, and the question I have is, are you recognizing that that's not for your glory? You're a Christian now. We've put it all to death, and now I live for Christ, and I happen to be an influencer, and so how am I pointing that to Christ? What am I doing? How am I bringing people into what God's up to? You see this reorientation and how we get it so wrong all the time? With so much of our life, it's like 3% of the quadrant of our life gets given to the glory of God. Then the other 97%, it's like, we never think about it. I have the gift of influence. I got to build my kingdom. But we don't really use that language. We just go through life and we never realize, wait a second, maybe that influence was given to me, stewarded to me by God, and I'm going to give an account for how I used it. Some of you have the gift of singleness. We talked about that in 1 Corinthians, right? This, this, this incredible gift where you can use time that others who are married are, are investing in their relationship with their spouse or with their children, but there's, there's a little extra time there to, to position that and posture that like the, like the Apostle Paul for the glory of God. Some of you are those that aren't just influencers, but, but you actually have extraordinary wealth. Pour that into the kingdom. Build churches Take land back. B buy, a, buy buildings. You know? Can we do that? I, just to tell you, we want to buy a building. If, if that's you in this room, help us. Okay? <laughs> you know why? We won't be able to be here forever. It, culture goes this way, and if you haven't noticed, it's going that way really fast. And those who stand on the word of God eventually... When it goes this way, they get fed up with the people who are standing this way. And so we got to take some land back in the name of Jesus and for generations have a plan to win South Loop to the city. And that's going to take a building. 
Now this is, I get some amens, that's good. This is not a pledge drive, I'm just saying. Okay, the offering bag will be on the, on the way out. Some of you know how to play with kids. You go to the family, you go to the cousin's house, you got kids hanging on your ankles. You're rolling around with them, you're tickling them, they're laughing. Eventually they get hurt because you played too rough with them, then you say you're sorry, then you keep playing with them. Okay? Did you know that your ability to play with kids is not something you just manifested because you're, you're, you're something special? What if, what if God, in his providence, made you that uncle or aunt for much more than having a good time? What if, what if he said, no, no, I got a plan? And what if that plan is, Pastor Wraith has 50 kids over there that don't yet know the gospel, and they need to hang off your legs and your ankles so that they can be one to faith in Jesus. Here's what I'm trying to say. We, we as Christians have this responsibility before a holy God to recognize everything in our life is not just ours on accident. It's been assigned to us. It's been stewarded to us. That's Paul's language. We've, we've already covered all of this language, right? In chapter nine, he talked about it's a stewardship. And even the little things that we just enjoy, they're not worth enjoying as a Christian if we have not learned that they find their true purpose underneath the one singularity, which is Christ on his throne and his kingdom. And it's a responsibility, and we're not off the hook. This is ordinary Christianity. This is not radical Christianity. And the Christian life is constantly reorienting ourselves back towards ground zero. This, Jesus is our North Star. This is what he's doing. This is how he's behaving. This is what he's up to. We're not confused on that. We're standing boldly on the word of God. And anywhere we find this, the, the, the process that should be happening in us now is one that involves repentance, feeling Jesus take the burden off of us, and then like, again, a kid in a candy shop saying, God, I want to run faster than I ever have before. It's got to start with repentance, where we say, God, I missed it. I, I, you know, I've been thinking about this wrong. I've been going through my day in these relationships and the, you know, my train ride. I, I just haven't thought about how my train rides to the glory of God. And then we look to the cross and we, say, and we see Jesus looking down at us saying, I know you haven't. And I paid that debt on the cross for you in full. Romans 8, 1, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Zero. Not partial condemnation. Jesus isn't looking at you kind of, you know, you know, real guilty looking. No condemnation in Christ. His blood paid it all. But now there's the Holy Spirit who's been given to you saying, let's go, let's, let's make disciples. Let's get after the work God's given to us. And you're invited into it. Every one of you. We're doing this. And then secondly, there's also an accounting. And just to lay this on thick here at the end. There's a responsibility, but then there's an accounting we're going to give to God for how he stewarded what he gave to us. Paul already covered this again. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me read to you this very important passage in light of everything we just covered today. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, this is what every Christian does. We're building on the foundation. We're, we're, we're taking our gifts, our stewardships, our personalities, our stories, our relationships, and, and we're building on this kingdom as Christians. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that has, anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. 
If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Let's make sure we get that. Let's repeat what we, we had a whole sermon on that text. There's a judgment for our salvation. And every single human, Christian and non-Christian, is gonna stand before a holy God. And, and, and the judgment of whether or not we will receive an eternal reward in heaven is based on one thing, Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And, and we will, we, our salvation will be determined on whether or not we know him personally as Lord and Savior. Whether or not we truly trusted in his sacrifice on our behalf for the forgiveness of all our sins. And if anyone of us has not done that authentically or truly, our eternity will be separation from God for all eternity. And so I beseech you now, if you've never authentically done that, if what I'm sharing with you right now seems new to you, don't leave this room before you genuinely put your faith in Jesus. Be done with nominal Christianity, which is all about us, and meet the real Jesus who's king and who's gonna stand at the judgment day. But then, then, then there's this other part of our judgment, which says that he's gonna, he's gonna look at how we built on the foundation and how we used all of his resources how we used the time he gave to us, how we used that money he gave to us, how we used all the resources he gave to us and our, our networks and, our, and our, our gifts. And he's gonna say, how'd you build? You, you might suffer loss. Some of you will suffer loss on that day. That's what the text says. You'll escape through fire. You'll be in heaven because you trusted in Jesus. Praise God, it's gonna be sweet. But you're gonna suffer some loss in that judgment because you wasted the precious gifts God's given you. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, God, one thing we pray regularly in this church is that we pray that a remarkable movement of the Spirit would take place among us and then flow through us into the city. God, we pray for that all the time. God, I pray for a movement of God that works its way here, now, even in the way we sing in response to your word preached, that would be a marked identifier that, Jesus, you are working right now. Holy Spirit, we, we are so hungry to see Chicago impacted for Christ. And we recognize, Jesus, that there's great repentance that needs to take place, first and foremost, in our own hearts, in my own heart. I confess that before you, God. I'm preaching to myself today, as I always do. I, I squander so much. And God, I know I can look back on, on plenty of moments and plenty of times that on my judgment, that's going to be burned up in the fire. And God, I am sorry for that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to waste the precious resources you've assigned me. I don't want to waste a moment of this. Far too much is at stake. And Jesus, we know that you are returning very soon. And so Jesus, I pray for your help right now. God, I pray that you would mobilize this church for the kingdom of God. I pray that you would mobilize this church to be the kind of church where every Christian gets busy with the work of making disciples. That we wouldn't get stuck in some kind of like, like rhythm and, and plan that makes us feel like we're being faithful Christians, but really we're not busy with the work you called us to. May we repent of that, joyfully repent of that, and just fling it off. May we run hard after Christ and build everything off the word of God. Lord, we love you. We worship you. You've been so good to us, better than we deserve. 
and we are running. We're running towards heaven. We're more excited about heaven than we are about the good things in this life that we enjoy. And so God, work this in us now. Holy Spirit, do something wonderful, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.